Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Let's read the passage and be reminded as we do that this is the word of the Almighty God, without error, perfect, and able to save our souls. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, we pray now that you would lead us in truth by your Holy Spirit and through this word of yours. Change us, Lord. Cause us to praise your name. Loosen our tongues, Lord, and help us to live lives of worship to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we were together for our time of Christmas celebration. We spent time in Luke chapter 1, and it was a wonderful time together. Two weeks ago, we were uh, in Romans 8, and we uh, were still working through this particular section, starting in verse 31. We got down as far as verse 33, and so today I'd like to pick up where we left last time, um, recap some of what we talked about last time, and then allow that to lead us into this final portion of the great eighth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Last time when we looked at this section, we were looking at some of the objections that the Apostle Paul anticipated would arise at this point in the chapter and in the letter after all that he has taught us. And these objections, as we saw, were divided up into two major headings. The first was around this question, what person is there who can be against us? What person or people can be against us? And the second major heading is what circumstance or circumstances could possibly be against us? And against us in what sense? Well, in this sense, able to overcome us, able to overcome our no condemnation status that we now have by faith in Jesus Christ alone, trusting in his righteousness and not our own. Is there such a person who could possibly separate us from what Paul calls the love of God, the love of God. And you remember the broader context that led us into this section was our discussion of the golden chain. Uh, the golden chain being 
exemplified in verses 29 and 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So the context Paul is concerned with here is helping Christians to know the security of our salvation. In fact, the eternal security of our salvation. That is to say that if anyone is in Christ, you can never be plucked out of him. You are permanently in him. There is nothing you can do to take yourself out from him, and there is nothing no one else and no circumstance can do to pull you out of him. And so his view is he wants to encourage. This is pastoral. He wants to encourage us to know our salvation is secure in Christ you will most certainly be brought to the end of that golden chain, which is final glorification, when your body will be raised and perfected like the body of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is in view here, this eternal glory that is to be revealed in all of us, the sons of God. Paul's answer to the objection, is there a person who could possibly be against us, is simply answered each time with this reason. The love of God precludes it. The love of God will not allow anyone to prevail against us. And his argument in verse 32, the way he describes this love of God, is in an action. He who did not spare his own son, that is the father who didn't spare even his own son, his precious son, his unique son, the son of his love, but delivered him up for us all. That's another way of saying he handed him over to death on our behalf. If he has done that, if he has spent the most in his precious son by giving him for us, will he not do all that is lesser than that by freely giving us all things? That's the argument. So the love of God precludes any person from separating us from that love and from eternal security in him. The next objection that Paul raises is in verse 33, and he says, well, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Is there some person who can act against us in a court of law by bringing up an accusation against us for some future sin that we have yet to commit? Could we be condemned at the bar of God's justice by some person who points to some rightful sin that we commit? And his answer again is the love of God. Look at verse 33. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? First of all, God has elected this group. He has set his love upon them. He has chosen them. They are his own choice for eternal salvation. And then he says, it is God who justifies. And we saw that the sense of that word is it is God justifying. God who is, has justified us and who continues to defend us in the person of Christ against every accusation that comes against us from the world, from our adversary the devil, and even from ourselves, our own flesh, which wars against our souls. 
Today we pick up now where we left off last time. So there is no person who can rightly accuse us. Anyone who tries, it's like the dart or the arrow will not stick to us because Christ won't allow it. He himself has laid down his life. His precious blood has been spilt for us, covering all our sins, wiping all our sins, past, present, and future, brothers and sisters, away. He puts it into the sea of his forgetfulness. He puts it behind his back. In other words, never to be brought up again against his elect. But is there someone who could condemn us? See, in verse 33, he ratchets the argument up a little bit. He says, who will bring a charge, first of all? And then in verse 34, excuse me, who is he who condemns? This is a person who is not only seeking to accuse us, but seeking a, or rather demanding, a final verdict of guilty at the bar of God's justice. Can anyone do that? Can anyone condemn us? Well, if we look at the testimony of the early Christians in the early church, there were many who were condemned for crimes that they did not do, and they were put to death unjustly. Matthew Henry on this idea said, The primitive Christians had many black crimes laid to their charge, heresy, sedition, rebellion, and whatnot. For these, the ruling powers condemned them. But no matter for that, says the apostle, while we stand right at God's bar, it is of no great moment or importance how we stand at men's, meaning at men's bar of, of justice. If we are right in the sight of God, if he himself is the justifier, then who can possibly condemn? The argument is you would have to be greater than God. And there is no one who is greater than God. Look what his ironclad responses to that question, who is he who condemns in verse 34? He says, it is Christ who died. That's a one-time past action. And furthermore is also written, risen. He uses the word in Greek for furthermore. That means rather or to a greater degree. So he's building an argument here. In other words, you could say, and also was raised, who is even at the right hand of God, a better translation is, who is also at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In other words, he continuously intercedes for us. And this links us back to verses 26 and 27 of this chapter when we learned about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us constantly. He prays for us because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Well, here we learn that it is Christ who also intercedes for us by defending us against every accusation and by constantly praying for us. We have two great high priests, as we mentioned several weeks ago, who are constantly advocating for his people, that they would make it to the end, that their faith would not fail. And that is how he ensures it. So you can see how this argument builds. He is pointing to the death of Christ. And brothers and sisters, how often do we simply stop there when we think about our salvation? We say, well, Christ died for me. And that's right. A hearty amen to that. But we don't stop there. There's more 
to this defense that we must know and must proclaim. Yes, his death was critical for our justification, but look what he further says, but he was also raised. Why is that important? That is important to prove that we have been justified. It would be one thing to say that Christ died for sinners and you are justified, but if he remained in the grave, what assurance would anyone have that his work was effective? Those who sin die. Death is the penalty. It's the punishment, the the result of all sin. So a man who dies and stays in the grave shows that he is a sinner. But God raised Christ from the dead to prove that Christ was no sinner. Neither were his people condemned any longer. His work was paid in full at the cross. He satisfied the divine justice of the Father. It builds our confidence in the work of God to know that he raised his son from the dead. But not only that, he also was exalted to the right hand of God where he is presently seated. That's called his session. Why is that important to know as we think about defense against the attacks that come? Because it demonstrates that Jesus Christ rules and reigns over absolutely everything. He has been honored, glorified, exalted because of his perfect work. And he is now at the right hand of power with all authority in heaven and earth given to him to accomplish his will. Do you think that he is able to bring his children to final redemption if he has all authority given him as the reward of his faithful service? Of course. And not only that, but notice the final build. He is not only exalted and ruling, but he also continuously intercedes for his people. Why is that important? Because we sin, don't we? It's not the practice of our lives anymore. We don't live in sin and love sin. In fact, the opposite. We hate it. And we are being brought to repent of our sin as a pattern in our lives. But that doesn't mean that the accusations don't fly. They do. And so what do we do when these accusations come? We need an assurance that every sin has been pardoned. And so Paul is saying, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. In every one of these ministries, he has died for you. He has risen for you. He is exalted and seated at the right hand of power for you where he prays and intercedes for you constantly. That is our ironclad defense that shuts down that whole notion of somebody being able to bring a charge or a condemnation against us. Now, there's only one thing that's left to address, and that is what circumstance or circumstances could possibly be brought against us that might cause us to fall away and not reach the goal. And that's really what verses 35 through 39 are all about. Look with me at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul uses the same word for who here that he did in verse 31, 33, and 34. It's a word in Greek that can be translated who or what, depending on the context. And because Paul is going to give us a list of circumstances to follow, This word really would be better translated as what? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he's not talking about our love to Christ. He's talking about the love of Jesus Christ for us. That's important because 
The doubts and the concerns that we have as we think about the possibility of losing one's salvation, losing our salvation, is what if I lose my hold on him? But Paul is turning this whole argument, this whole false way of thinking around, and he's saying, you don't have a hold on him ultimately. He has the hold on you. It's his eternal love that is holding you. And he will never let you go. But do you believe that? That's what we're talking about here. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he uses, this is, this is wonderful, he uses the word for separate, which means to put asunder. It's the same word that describes a divorce. So Paul is really framing this up in terms of if you can lose your salvation, if there's some circumstance that can come against you that would sever your eternal life, then you could become divorced from God is what he is saying. It would be possible for God to be divorced from you and it's he who has set his love on you. So he would have to initiate that. And of course the answer is no. But you have to, you have to work through this list. He says, who shall separate, what shall separate us, excuse me, from the love of Christ? And then he's going to list seven circumstances or tools, you might call them, that Satan and all enemies of the cross use or try to use to separate us from the Lord. These are all tools that are meant to rob us of various things. And it's, it's not an exhaustive list, but it certainly is representative. He starts with, shall tribulation. Tribulation is a word that just means pressure. It means pressing together. We saw this back in Romans 2 and especially in Romans 5. Um, it's the idea of grapes that are being squeezed together. And the sense is, it's outward pressures that can come upon us where we feel pressed. It's, it's a word for affliction. Shall tribulation. And then he goes to distress. Shall distress. Distress is a word that means to be in a narrow place. It's to feel tight, particularly within yourself when circumstances are hemming you in and you feel crushed, like there's no escape. It's the word that our Lord used when he said, enter by the narrow gate, the straight gate, that, that tight entrance that is required for you to press into with great force to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to persecution. What about persecution? Well, that's a word that just means to be pursued with hostility like somebody who's being hunted like an animal to be killed. So these first three threats, these are threats that can come to the mind of a person and they can cause a loss of comfort and a loss of peace in the mind. And then the next four that he lists are all threats to the body, to the body. And these result in a loss of comfort and peace in the body. He says, famine, that's a word that means hunger. It just means to have insufficient food. He talks about nakedness. Nakedness does not necessarily mean totally without clothes, but it means a lack of clothing. In other words, it signals coldness when the body seeks to be warm. He says peril next. Peril is general dangers that the body may encounter. And then sword. Sword is a metaphor for death. 
So all of these are a, a loss of comfort and peace in the body or peace and comfort in the mind. And the question is, can any of these adverse circumstances tear us from the love of Christ? Can they cause us to become divorced from him, is the other way of saying that. And his answer is, no, a resounding no. I mean, we know from Jeremiah 31.3 that the Lord has loved us with an everlasting love, a love that is eternal. It has no beginning, and therefore it has no end. And Paul's argument in these verses is that the love of God is superior in every way to the threats that anyone may face. We know that Christians can face some or even all of these threats, the seven in the list I just read. We know at a minimum that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution, right? That's a minimum. Every, you are not a Christian if you can go through this life not suffering persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ, for standing for righteousness. That means something is just as simple as being ridiculed for your faith, being made fun of. Our Lord told us that he would send us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He told us that we will be hated by all for his name's sake. Not every single person, but all kinds of men, all groups of people, even the closest groups, including family, if they are hostile to Christ. See, Paul was not just hypothesizing these seven threats. He knew them from personal experience. And of these seven Paul had personally experienced six of them before he wrote this epistle to Romans. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gives a, a good summary, actually in a few different places in his epistles, but this is a good one to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and look with me starting at verse 22. This is in the context of Paul who is, um, he's being maligned by false prophets false apostles who are accusing him and undermining his apostolic ministry, saying that he's not a real apostle. And so what Paul is going to do here is compare himself with these false apostles. And he does it in a funny way. He, he uses irony to boast of weakness, of things that people would normally be ashamed of as a sort of parody of his opponents boasting in themselves. <laughs> and here's what he says. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, that's a reference to beatings, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one, it's 39. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So you can see there, Paul enumerates the list of all of these 
circumstantial threats that he himself has experienced. And the seventh one that he hadn't experienced at this time uh, of writing to the Romans, the seventh was the sword that would be later used to put Paul to death at Rome. But Paul is saying, in effect, but that shouldn't surprise you, loved ones. Even the sword, even death, that that could be brought against us. The Lord has always allowed his saints to be persecuted by the ungodly. And some of them have allowed, been allowed to be killed. Look at verse 36. Paul, as his exhibit, brings up a quote from, the, from Psalm chapter 44, verse 22. As it is written, this is... Um, Romans 8, verse 36. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, the context there is that was written by the sons of Korah. Um, we don't know exactly what the particular event was that uh, led to this prayer, but this seems to be a national lament, probably after the loss of a military defeat. Uh, or the experience of a military defeat in some unnamed battle. And so the sons of Korah are rehearsing the Lord's faithfulness to deliver them in the past. That's how the psalm starts. The first eight verses rehearse his faithfulness in the past. But then you'll notice that the tone changes quite abruptly in verse 9 all the way to verse 22 where he talks about uh, present distresses. And he speaks of God as one who has abandoned them, one who has uh, turned his back on them, who maybe even is sleeping or doesn't care. Verse 9, but you have cast us off and put us to shame. This is, uh, excuse me, Psalm 44, just a few select verses. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You've given us up like sheep intended for food, and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. The, the psalmist is pouring out his heart to the Lord. Um, if you ever think that the scriptures are made up, this would be a good example to show you that they are not manufactured. This is real. This is a real heartfelt cry from God's people in the midst of great trials in the midst of a great loss. And they feel like the Lord is, has abandoned them, even though they've put their trust in the Lord. They, they know his faithfulness in the past. He's going to finish the psalm in the last four verses by looking to the future and calling on the Lord to deliver them. But in the moment, he feels like a sheep who is just led to the slaughter and killed all the day long. Well, in what sense did Korah mean we are killed all the day long? Well, in a corporate, national, and literal sense, they had lost a lot of people, a lot of men in the battle. But Paul picks up this theme of the extreme threat of even death, and he says, nothing has changed. God's people in every age are still accounted just as sheep for the slaughter. So this should not surprise you, believers. Um, I mean, that's true in the universal church, isn't it? There is somebody in some place of the world even now who is physically being persecuted or martyred for the faith. But this is also true in a figurative sense, too, that we are killed all the day long. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote in 
1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, in several places, he speaks of standing in a position of perpetual death. He says that he stood in jeopardy every hour in 1 Corinthians 15. That he died daily. He didn't literally die daily, but he's talking about suffering in the ministry that he experienced and that the apostles experienced. He said in 2 Corinthians 1 that the apostles had the sentence of death in themselves so that they would not trust in themselves but in God who raises the dead. In 2 Corinthians 4, he speaks of always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. We just read in 2 Corinthians 11, he's in deaths often. So he's talking about being at the risk of death for the sake of the gospel. Paul was constantly putting himself uh, at that risk. He was living a life that was uh, on the edge between life and death at all times for the sake of the Lord and the gospel. He says he didn't even consider his life dear to himself in the book of Acts. He lived as a man always on the brink of death and he put himself at risk for the Lord continuously. And you know, if you read the history of the Christian church, um, like Fox's Book of Martyrs is a good example where you have many examples of actual martyrdom from the Christians throughout the early church, even up to the modern age. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. By whom? Who, who accounts us? Who reckons us? Who considers us just as these dumb animals to be killed? Well, our enemies. In Korah's day, that was physical enemies who warred with Israel. In Paul's day and in our day, that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three enemies. They reckon us as nothing but sheep fit for the slaughter. That we're better off dead than alive is what that means. Matthew Henry said, they make no more of killing a Christian than of butchering a sheep. Sheep are killed not because they are hurtful while they live, but because they're useful when they are dead. They kill the Christians to please themselves, to be food to their malice. So you might say, why is this happening to us, Lord? Uh, we are in Christ, your beloved. We are your elect. And that was the question that the sons of Korah had in the psalm that we just read in Psalm 44. And the answer is because it would happen to the Messiah, to the Son of God, to the beloved, the one who is loved more than all. It would happen to him. But Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so it follows that all who walk in his steps, who follow in his path, will share in his sufferings to some extent. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his namesake. All right? If they treated the master that way, will they treat his servants any better? No, and we don't expect that. But as true as that is, our conclusion must never be that the Lord has abandoned us. Our conclusion must never be that he is sleeping or that he hasn't carefully and purposefully ordained every trial and every pain that comes into our lives for the sake of Christ. It's not that he doesn't love us. In fact, it's because he loves us 
that he allows us to endure this for the sake of Christ. It brings great glory to his name. And it also is why he will render to each one at the end according to their deeds. He is storing up his wrath against the day of wrath for all those who are unbelieving and who are hostile toward his own. He is righteous in all things and he will vindicate his people. Look at verse 37 with me of Romans 8. Here's Paul's answer to this seeming calamity that we are just accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He says, yet. Again, here's the conclusion we need to come to. This is a huge point of contrast. I know this seems futile that you are just accounted as nothing but a sheep to be butchered, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's the truth that we need to underline and remember. In all these things we are, he uses a Greek compound that means hyper-victors, hyper-conquerors. You could say super-conquerors. Or it's also translated more than conquerors. In other words, above and beyond a normal conqueror's status. That's the status that God's people have. And you could hear somebody saying, well... You've got to be kidding. How is it that Christians are super conquerors if they're subject to all these threats that we just read about in verse 35, that list of seven? How can those who are so weak also at the same time be in a position of exceeding strength and victory? And the answer, loved ones, is the Lord's ways are higher than our ways. The Lord perfects his strength in our weakness. This is all about the Lord showcasing his strength through weak sheep such as we because it brings him great glory to sustain us and deliver us and draw us to himself so that our confidence is in him, that our faith is strengthened to only be in him. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say we will be super conquerors someday, but he says we are super conquerors now. Present tense. We are now. How so, Paul? Well, he says it here. He says, in all these things. What things? Well, that refers back to verse 35 through that list of the seven circumstances, those threats. So how is it that we are conquerors right now? Well, firstly, we conquer through every kind of adversity. Not just some of these seven things, but through every one of them, we are super conquerors. Everyone, there's not one that can be brought against us that will destroy us. Each of these things in the list has power to separate people from people, to put people asunder from other people in the world. They break human fellowship, but not in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is teaching here. None of it can separate us from union with Jesus Christ. Firstly, we conquer because we conquer every kind of adversity. Secondly, we are conquerors, super conquerors, because none of these circumstances can touch our true life. None of these circumstances can touch our true life. Colossians 3 says that we have died and that our life is hidden with Christ, where? In God. In the heavenlies. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, describes this. He says, we've been raised to be seated in the heavenly places together with Christ now. 
That's where our souls are even now, loved ones. That's where your true identity and security is. It's seated with Christ in heaven. No one can touch you there. No one can yank you down from there and cause you to lose your eternal life, which has already begun. Even if they kill the physical body, our souls are safe in Christ. Hence, you are super conquerors through him who loved us. Thirdly, God causes, and this, is, this point really touched me, God causes or turns every attack that is against us to actually further and advance his kingdom. He causes every attack against us to gain ground in the kingdom of God. William Hendrickson tipped me off to this idea. He's a commentator on this book of Romans, and he said this, A conqueror is a person who defeats the enemy. One who is more than a conqueror causes the enemy to become a helper. Super conquerors, in other words, not only defeat their enemies, but they turn them to supporters to advance the very cause that they themselves were against. And we see a wonderful example of that in even the Apostle Paul's life, don't we? Saul, who was a vehement persecutor of the church, an enemy of the cross of Christ, the Lord himself apprehended and conquered his heart on the road to Damascus. And he turned him into one of the strongest advocates for the faith. And then, wonderfully, the Lord accomplishes that same principle of turning your enemies who are against you to be for you in Paul's own life. And I want to illustrate this for you um, in the book of Acts. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 13, let's just take um, a look at the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. Paul in Acts 13 was uh, one of those teachers at the church in Antioch, Antioch in Syria, and the Holy Spirit separates Paul and Barnabas, two of the five teachers that are listed, uh, to the work of the ministry. And they take John Mark, whose last name is Mark, with them, and they head off on their first missionary journey. And they go by way of Cyprus, uh, sail up to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They enter the region of Pamphylia, and then they move their way up to Pisidia, and they go to another city called Antioch. There's two Antiochs. This Antioch is in Pisidia in modern-day Turkey, not the Antioch in Syria. And while they're there, they go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and Paul teaches, and he gives the gospel. He teaches them about Christ and where he came from and how he laid down his life and how God raised him from the dead. And the response is that in verse 43 of chapter 13, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, to the Jews. But since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles, 
For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed, ordained to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. There are several persecutions There are tribulations. There's pressure that is brought to bear against Paul and Barnabas. And these are attacks of the enemies of the cross. And behind every one of these attacks is Satan himself. You recognize that our warfare is not physical, right? Against flesh and blood. Our warfare, as we know from Ephesians 6, is spiritual. It's against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. So you have to understand that that's what's happening in these particular events that are recorded here for us in the Acts. Look with me at verse 50. Here's Satan's first strategy. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. What does Satan do here? He stirs up the city's leaders to persecute Paul and Barnabas in order to drive them out so that they would stop preaching the gospel. But look at verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Here's the attack, but the Lord delivers them and brings them to another city and gives them success in the word of God where people are hearing the message and responding with joy and the Holy Spirit is filling people. It's wonderful. Look at what happens next in chapter 14, verse 2 in Iconium. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. So uh, Satan's strategy here is the unbelieving Jews are now stirring up the Gentiles. But look what happens in verse 3. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Rather than cowering and departing, the Lord actually makes them more bold in their utterance to speak the word of God. And God attends his word with great power through wonders and signs to accomplish his purpose. But the attack doesn't stop. Come down to verse 5. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, that is Paul and Barnabas. So here's the next attack, a violent attack. What happens in verse 6? They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. The Lord gave them an escape. He protected them and actually spoiled the scheme of the enemy. They were planning a violent attack. The Lord made it known to them. And they moved on. They fled so they could keep preaching the gospel. And then you come to Lystra, starting in verse 8 of chapter 14, where Paul miraculously heals a crippled man who could never walk from the time of his birth. And look at Satan's strategy here in verse 12. And Barnabas, this is after now Paul has 
healed this cripple and he, the, the cripple stands up and walks and the people see it. And here's what happens. And verse 12, Barnabas, I'm sorry, verse 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the uh, Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So what is Satan's strategy here? He changes from persecution and from a violent attack and the poisoning of the minds of individuals to flattery. To flattery. And self-worship to derail Paul and Barnabas. We're just going to make much of these so-called apostles and see if they take the glory for themselves. But look what happens in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. And so he just, they, by the grace of God, reject the praise, the unlawful praise of these men, and they turn to teach back, they turn back to the Lord to teach about him, to proclaim him. But Satan's strategy doesn't stop. In verse 18 and 19, it says, With these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So he continues to bring more unauthorized praise and flattery while at the same time, look at verse 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So he brings both flattery and he brings a violent attack on either side in order to destroy these apostles. And Paul is stoned. I want you to notice that here. He's allowed to be stoned and left for dead. But look at verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. <laughs> he rose up and went into the city, back into Lystra where he was just stoned. Why would he do that? Why would he risk the persecution again knowing that they were hostile to him? Because the grace of God was upon Paul and Barnabas. The Lord raised him up and enabled him to continue preaching. He was, they were, invincible during this time because the Lord was accomplishing his work of spreading the gospel through them. Later, in Acts chapter 17, the Jews in Thessalonica learn about Paul's preaching at Berea and they come there to stir up the crowds, but we're told that the Lord protected him. And the brethren sent Paul away. And then later in Acts chapter 23, there were a group of Jews who banded together and they promised to kill Paul and that they wouldn't eat or drink until they had done it. But the Lord wouldn't allow it. He protected Paul again and again through the adversity and the question is why? Well, the Lord had great plans for Paul to bring him to Rome to preach the gospel there. That was God's purpose, even to bring the message of the gospel to Caesar's own household. 
Listen to what he said in the Philippian epistle. This is during his first imprisonment when he's in Rome. He's under house arrest for a period of two years. In Philippians 1, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. You see what's happening here? Paul recognizes that his uh, persecution is actually being ordained by the Lord in order for him to preach to Caesar's household and to the broader city of Rome, but also this. When he was released from that house arrest after two years, Paul wrote the first epistle to Timothy and the letter to Titus, which is recorded for us here, and the church is still being blessed by those writings. That happened as a result of those circumstances, those adverse threats that came to Paul. And then five years after this time, Nero is still in power and he's persecuting Christians vehemently. And Paul is rearrested and brought before trial a second time before Nero, except this time Paul doesn't have an expectation of escape, of living. And all we're told, because he writes this during the time of 2 Timothy, he tells us that his departure is at hand. He knows he's going to die. But it's the Christian uh, church historian, church historian Eusebius, who tells us that Paul was beheaded by Nero. The sword finally came upon Paul and took his life. And you might say, well, see, the enemy finally prevailed and won. But the light of the gospel did not extinguish when Paul's light extinguished. Paul had lit so many other torches who also lit other torches. The gospel was proliferating and all through the adversity that the Lord had ordained for his beloved son. Paul was a super conqueror. That's the idea. All his enemies' efforts against him only served to ultimately advance the kingdom of God to accomplish his own will. And that, loved ones, has been the testimony of the saints throughout the ages, throughout church history. There are so many instances we could look to, and I, I wanted to just share a couple with you because they were dear to me as I was thinking about these truths in Romans 8 and how great our God is. That's the real takeaway from this. This is an exercise in strengthening our faith, that we would know who this God is whom we serve, that he is able to do much more than we think or attribute to him. You may have heard of Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the early church fathers. He was called the Bishop of Smyrna, one of the seven churches that's listed in those first couple of chapters, chapters two and three of Revelation in um, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So he was a pastor, and he was known for his piety, for his holiness. He was known for his good teaching, and he was known for his tenderness as a pastor, as a shepherd of the sheep. <clears throat> his is arguably the most famous martyrdom of the second century in the Christian church, which happened around the year 155 or 156 AD. And at that time, Rome was burning Christians alive simply by identifying as a Christian and by not um, citing the oath, which is Caesar is Lord. If you just identified as a Christian and you wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, you were burned in those days. Now, Polycarp 
in his martyrdom is an old man. He's 86 years old or older. And we're told in the account of his martyrdom that he was betrayed by a member of his own household. He's brought before the police and the head of police. And Polycarp asks the head of police before his execution to have just one hour to pray. And he takes that hour and he actually extends it to two hours and he prays aloud. And the people who listened were amazed at the gospel that he spoke in his prayer. And many repented of their sin and came to faith in Christ through that. And then as Polycarp entered the arena to actually be burned, there was a voice recorded that the people heard, a voice from heaven, And the voice said this, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. This was an audible voice. No one saw any person speaking, but those present heard it. The proconsul himself did not want to burn an old man at the stake. (laughs) And so he urged him, uh, he said, Have respect to your age, Polycarp, and simply give the oath that Caesar is Lord. Renounce Christ. And Polycarp, in his response, said this, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has never done me any wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. As the fire was lit, historians recorded that the people saw a strange thing. The fire made a shape of a vaulted chamber like a ship's sail that filled with wind and made a wall around the body of Polycarp so that he couldn't be burned. (laughs) And he was described as being in the midst of this um, chamber as, quote, bread baking or as gold refined in the furnace. And we perceived such a sweet aroma as a precious spice. When the lawless people saw that his body wouldn't burn, um, they commanded an executioner to go and just stab him so that he would die. And he did. But not before the Lord established a powerful testimony through Polycarp to everyone who watched and to those historians who captured the story and who passed it on for generations to follow that we would hear about the greatness of Polycarp's God. Fast forward now to the uh, 16th century, and to a man named John Calvin, the famous French reformer. The Lord brought him to Geneva in Switzerland, where he was to reform the Roman Catholic Church there. He was professor of scripture, and he was also the pastor of St. Pierre Cathedral, starting in 1541. He had a partner there in Geneva whose name was William Farrell, So this is very much like Paul and Barnabas in the 16th century. And they are working together to reform the city of Geneva, which is a city of about 10,000 people at this time, away from the abuses and the false doctrines of the Catholic Church to be reformed in line with Scripture. One of the big changes that Calvin instituted was at the Lord's Supper, communion. And what he did was he fenced the Lord's Supper, he constrained it. He restrained others from coming and partaking who were known to be living in open sin. He would not allow them to partake. 
And because of that, he and William Farrell were exiled, were caused to flee from Geneva to Strasbourg in Germany. And what did the Lord do during that time? Well, for three years, he pastored a flock of about 500 French-speaking refugees. He taught New Testament in the local theological institute. And he wrote his first commentary, which, by the way, was on the book of Romans. And he published the second edition of his greatest work, his magnum opus, which is called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. After those three years, so the Lord gives him um, prolific ability and blesses his efforts as a refugee. After three years, the city council of Geneva calls for Calvin to come back to Geneva and to be their city's pastor once again. Calvin reluctantly accepts knowing that persecution just awaits him in Geneva. But he comes back and he picks up his pulpit ministry exactly where he left off, literally in the next verse that he had left off from three years prior. And then the refugees begin pouring in from many countries, from Scotland and England and Germany and Italy, themselves escaping persecution in their native countries. And so Geneva's population basically doubles overnight, from 10,000 to 20,000. And guess who's the pastor who is teaching all of them? John Calvin. One of these refugees who comes is a man named John Knox, who sat under Calvin's preaching, and he himself becomes part of the team who put together the translation of the Bible for English-speaking refugees called the Geneva Study Bible. And it was the first Bible to have study notes in the margins that were taken from Calvin's sermons. It was a good Bible. And the Lord blessed that work and, and made that Bible the the primary Bible that was used by English Protestants over the next 100 years. That was the Bible that the Scottish Protestant Church used as their mainstay. That was the Bible that the pilgrims brought over on the Mayflower in 1620 to the American colonies. And that was the Bible of the early colonies. Is our God great? <laughs> Let me just give you one more. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, reputed as one of the, um, the best preachers of the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening. Edwards takes over his grandfather's church, Solomon Stoddard, in Northampton, Massachusetts. He's there as a faithful shepherd for 23 years. He also fences the Lord's table as Calvin had done hundreds of years before for people who are living in open sin, and actually for people who are not believers. Edwards takes a position, unlike his grandfather, who said, let's use the communion table as an evangelistic tool. Edwards says, no, the communion table is only for believers. And they take a vote as a church, and they thrust him out of his pulpit. And not only that, but out of the parsonage that he was living in with his family and growing food. And you think, wow, that's persecution from within, from his own people. And what happens to Edwards? He goes to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and he preaches to the Native Americans there, the Indians. And it's during that time that he writes one of his most famous works that's called The Freedom of the Will. And he does it in three months' time, which is amazing. The Lord blesses Edwards through the persecution, through the adver adversity, excuse me. 
The early church father, Tertullian, I'm sure many of you have heard this, he is famously known for having said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the death of the saints is what uh, propels the church forward in every age. And that's absolutely right, but it's not just the death of the saints. It is the sufferings, all the sufferings, all the afflictions and the persecutions, the trials of every saint. They work together to advance the kingdom of God by his own design. In fact, Scripture teaches that all these afflictions do ultimately is they strengthen our faith, they strengthen the faith of others, the church, and they bring glory to God. (laughs) If you just think with me for a moment, what if the worst should happen to us? The worst meaning in this life and our very lives were taken from us. Would we be super conquerors then? And the Scripture's answer is a resounding yes. Even in death, you are all super conquerors. Why? Because the scripture teaches that as soon as we close our eyes in death in this world, to be absent with from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no gap there. You are immediately in his presence. Your soul is already in his presence. Your body is just here on the earth right now. At the last day, he will glorify his saints. So in immediate death, during the immediate intermediate state when you are with him in heaven, there's no harm that comes to you. In fact, you will be in glory and worshiping him. And then he will raise your body from the dead, reunite your soul with a glorified body where you will live on the new earth with him and all the saints forever. You are super conquerors through him who loved us. All the saints are super conquerors now and at that last day. And the key is this, it's through him who loved us. That's the reason. We're not super conquerors because of some great strength in ourselves. We're only super conquerors because of him and his great love for us. In fact, Christ, you could say, is the true super conqueror. Christ is the real hero in all of this. Our call to worship this morning was John 16 Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I've conquered the world. I'm the super conqueror is what he said. And he said that at a time before he even went to the cross. That's amazing. How can he say that? Because he is the Lord God. And he was able to accomplish redemption fully. No one could stop him from that. And because he has done it, what's the benefit for us, loved ones? Sin no longer has power over us. We don't have to obey sin any longer. You are free from the power of sin. That's the truth. If you sin, repent, confess your sin to the Lord, and keep going. Walk in holiness. That's your new pattern of life. Death has no more claim on us. We just saw that. You close your eyes in this world and immediately you're ushered into his presence. You're promoted to glory. And Satan has no power over us. He tries. He's like a lion who seeks to devour us, but he ultimately can't. His teeth have been filed down in the lion's mouth. He doesn't have a bite anymore that can harm you. Jesus is the real conqueror and we conquer through him. That's the key to remember. So, When we feel like the Lord has perhaps abandoned us or is sleeping like the sons of Korah did in Psalm 44 because 
We're in a deep trial. I'm talking about in a moment of time, we lose our sight of the Savior. This happens to every true Christian. We come back to these truths and we remember that it's through the suffering that he loves us, that he hasn't abandoned us. In fact, he is standing with us in the trial. And he wants us to call on his name so that he would deliver us. Deliver us by sustaining us in that trial so we're not crushed. Or deliver us by taking us out of the trial some way or another. <clears throat> Next time we're going to, Lord willing, look at these final two verses in this chapter to close out chapter 8. He lists, Paul lists, a last couple of threats that are possible to be brought against us. But the conclusion is the same. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Nobody and nothing can be against us. You are super conquerors in Christ. I trust that your faith is encouraged this morning. That's my prayer as we go through this together. This is about recognizing that our God is able to do far more exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Come back to him again and again. Encourage each other in these things. We need each other's help, brothers and sisters. We, we go through hardship often, and more is coming. It's planned for us, but that's okay. We are not to fear those things. Fear the Lord. He is your help. He is your comfort. He is your shield. His word is more valuable than your feelings. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we are just humbled, Lord, before you to acknowledge you and to recognize how wonderful and magnificent and large you are, Lord. How powerful, how, how invincible you are, Lord. That's really it. We, we are gaining more of a vision of your glory and your invincibility and your conquering over all things all people, all circumstances, over all time. And Lord, how you are so powerful, you are able to even turn the attacks of the enemy to that which promotes your very causes. How glorious are you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you this morning. Help us, Father. Help us to remember you and to learn more about your faithfulness in your word. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge your the track record of faithfulness you are developing in each of our lives, that we would look to you in those times of trial and call on the name of the Lord in the day of trouble, knowing that you will answer us and we will glorify your great name because we will give you thanks and praise that you are the deliverer. Even when you are seemingly silent for a time, Lord, your ear is open to our cry. You delight in your children. And your love is upon us. Thank you. Thank you for each one here this morning. Thank you for each one in every faithful gospel-preaching church who loves you. Build the faith of your people, Lord. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.